Our scripture this morning is found in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. And you can find it on page 1190 of your Pew Bible. Right then, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. When he sent them away, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came, and he was alone. Meanwhile, the boat, fighting a strong headwind, was being battered by the waves and was already far away from land. Very early in the morning, he came to his disciples, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! They were so frightened, they screamed. Just then, Jesus spoke to them, Be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. Then Peter got out of the boat, was walking on the water toward Jesus. But when Peter saw the strong wind, he became frightened. And as he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me! Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, You man of weak faith, why did you begin to have doubts? When they got into the boat, the wind settled down. Then those in the boat worshipped Jesus and said, You must be God's son. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Wow, it's loud. Am I loud? All right. Well, I wanted to, first of all, just say um, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for last week. Last week was my first Sunday here at First Church, and you all have been so welcoming, so hospitable. Uh, even the night we arrived here in Seattle, there was food in the refrigerator and on the counter, and, and just uh, that felt so good to us when you land after five days of driving across country and there's food in the refrigerator. That's like a miracle has occurred. And uh, so thank you for your hospitality. And just last week, and even the Seahawks jersey, I'll be wearing that uh, the rest of the season. I won't say anything more about that last week. <laughs> but today we're looking at this question of here. Why can't we stay here? And I'm talking on several levels here. But first of all, I want to just talk about why can't we stay here in terms of that means change, right? We, we've heard about that. We actually heard about all the changes throughout many years here at the church. And I can tell you how I deal with change. Would you like to know how Pastor Matt deals with change? So my wife and I, on every anniversary, we go to a place called the Stanford Grill. We can't go there this year. I don't know where we'll go. But it's a, it's a swanky place. They got jazz, light jazz, live playing in the background, wood fireplaces, 
uh, excellent food, excellent service. You know, the, the servers have the menu memorized. And we go every anniversary to this place. We get great service, great food. And one of our favorite parts of this meal together is we share a dessert together. This is our, our anniversary tradition. It's called the Chocolate Uprising. I love the name of this dessert. You can see it's a layer. It's like a brownie Texas sheet cake kind of thing with ice cream in the middle and then another brownie thing on top of that. And then a big old dollop of homemade whipped cream, chocolate sauce, caramel drizzled around, chocolate shavings on top. Anybody want to go? You want to go get some dessert right now? And so we love this dessert. We split it. And, you know, my wife usually eats most of it, but, you know, I try, you know, I say, try, let's save some, take home, honey. But uh, we ate this dessert. Now, this, the first, uh, several years ago, we went there to Stanford Grill right after we dropped our firstborn off at college. Has anybody ever dropped a child off at, not a child, but a young adult, I should say, at college? Anybody done that? Anybody here been dropped off at SPU or somewhere, right? You've been dropped off, right? Now, I remember, nobody tells you as a parent the emotional state you will be in at that moment. Now, those of you who are, have just recently been dropped off, you're kind of going, I don't see what the problem is, right? I know my daughters were like, uh, you know, what's the big deal, mom and dad? We're like, yeah, tears are coming off. And it's an emotional time because how many of you have, have dropped children off at kindergarten. Remember any parents do the kindergarten thing, right? Some of you, right? And you thought that was hard. Quadruple it for when they go to college. So that was the state. We had just dropped our firstborn off at college. We then go uh, just after that to this anniversary meal. Remember, we're talking about change, right? So we get to the end of the meal, and I am ready to order the chocolate uprising. The server comes to the table, and, I, and they say, you going to have dessert? We're like, oh yeah, we're having dessert. And I said, I want the chocolate uprising. And she looked at me and said, sir, we no longer offer that here. I looked at my wife. I have never seen a woman so depressed in my life, I mean, I know you, know, you know your spouse, you know your spouse when he or she is in that moment, you know, and that was the moment, I thought tears were going to start coming, it was, it was a dark moment, but it was partly because what was going on, there were two layers of change that we were wrestling with, right, the change of our family, and we had gone to be comforted by this dessert, <laughs> and they changed the menu on us. Now, I told you I wanted to let you know how I react to change, so I saw my wife upset, and, you know, there's this part of you, but I'm still a pastor. i got to keep being in pastor mode. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Those of you, you know, i got to be pastor, but I also have to be husband, and i got to figure out which hat I'm wearing now. But I began to well up in me this kind of desire. I want to see the manager. I want you guys to go back in the kitchen. I know you got some brownies back there. I know you got some ice cream back there and some whipped cream. Go put it together for me. Go get it, right? Serve me. Change things for me. That's how we react to change, don't we? In fact, we all react to change this way. 
fact, if you, they've actually looked at how we react to change, and you can map it because, and we're going to look at that, how this happened in the story today. But if you look at the change process, we've got a diagram here to kind of unpack this. You've got security comfort, you know. We're, on, we're, we're sailing along. Everything's smooth and smooth sailing. And we went for our security, our comfort in the midst of change. We went for our dessert. And somebody said, it's not there anymore. And what did we, what did I, how did, what was my initial reaction? Well, first of all, we were kind of in shock. I mean, that was the first denial. Like, you can't, you can't, you gotta be kidding me, right? You can't possibly be taking the best dessert off the menu. What were you thinking, right? You know, that's shock, right? And then it turned into, I wanna see the manager. I want you to go fix this. Now, I didn't really do that. I just, I'm, a, I'm, I'm uh, extemporaneously telling a story, as preachers do. But we did have a lengthy discussion with our server about why they no longer had the dessert. We got the answer. Then I'm looking at my, at grief, we're in grief. We were kind of like, we, we felt grief, actually, over a dessert. Which wasn't just about the dessert, was it? It was the grief of our family, too, right? And that's what I find about change, is that sometimes these little changes, a change in the menu, is really not just about that change. It's actually about some other change, some more significant change in our lives. And it's these little changes that spark them, right, to get us into that. But then the server did something else. The server came and said, would you like to consider another dessert? Now, at first, I was like, no, we are not having another dessert. We demand, you know, that's where you kind of want to go, right? Anybody, can I get a witness here this morning? Is anybody else with me this morning? But then I said, well, we'll consider it. Give us the dessert thing, right? So we sat there, and I looked over the menu. Now, I would remind you that the service has been great the whole time. The food has been wonderful. The atmosphere is still the same. Everything is still wonderful for this, except for this one change. And then I see one of my favorite, other favorite desserts on the menu called bread pudding. And I said, well, I'll try that. They brought that out. Oh, comfort has arrived. They drizzle it with all kinds of stuff. It's baked. It's got lots of fruit. And I'm like eating this thing up. And now, every time I go back to Stanford Grill, I've got a dilemma. Because they brought the chocolate uprising back, but now I've fallen in love with the bread pudding. <laughs> what do I do? Both. <laughs> I knew I had a witness here today. Thank you, brother. That's good. But see, what did I do? I began to hope again, right? I began to have a little faith again in, in what, I was, what was there, and I began to accept the new reality of desserts at the Stanford Grill. Does this ever happen in a church? Do we ever come to the church looking to be comforted, only to find that someone changed the menu? And then what do you do? How do you react I will tell you that whatever changes come, there's always a new reality that God is calling us to live into. And maybe it's in that change process that God is up to something, that God is doing something, right? And today we heard this gospel lesson of Jesus and his disciples, and they're in a boat again. Now in chapter 8 of Matthew, they had already gone through a storm together. Jesus calms the storm. They already knew that Jesus could calm storms. 
Then later, just earlier in this chapter, John the Baptist has been beheaded. Jesus is actually in, in, in grief. Maybe he's praying about his mission. He's actually trying to get away by himself to pray. And then the crowds show up. 5,000 plus show up. To, to, they pursue him. They find him. They gather around him. And this is where we get another miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. And the disciples have been a part of that miracle. And they have just sat down and they have just collected 12 baskets of bread and fish leftovers from the banquet that Jesus provided. And just as they're about to sit down and bask in the glory of the miracle and have a few days off eating leftovers, Jesus says, get in the boat. Go. Here's that go word again. We talked about it last week. But Jesus says immediately, he didn't give them time to actually sit around and talk about all that had happened and all they had seen. He says immediately, get in the boat and go. Go to the other side. What? The disciples know about change. They wanted to stay in that place of miracle. And Jesus is saying, get in the boat to go to the other side. And what is on the other side? Other people, not like them, different than them, looks different than them, acts different than they do. And they're to go to the other side. And by the way, this time, I'm not going with you. I'm going to the mountain. Jesus goes to the mountain and he goes to pray because I think, I interpret that he is wrestling with the death of John. And so he tells, I'll meet you. He's, he's planning to meet them on the other side. He says, go. And so they get in the boat and they go. Now, some interpreters have suggested that boat is the church because a church is a group of disciples who are going on a mission. I don't know how you define the church, but in this passage, if we define the church, we have to realize that the boat is on a mission. It is moving. It is going. It is left shore. It is headed to the other side. It is going. It is on a mission, and that's what disciples do. They go on this mission. Now, sometimes... I think sometimes the temptation of the church when it encounters resistance is to go back to port. I mean, the disciples sat in that boat, they were going, they faced a strong wind that was contrary, but they could have gone back to port. They could have turned around, but they knew that Jesus had said, go to the other side. They were listening to their leader. They were following Jesus. And so the disciples were on this mission. Now, I wonder... If the church today is on a mission, I wonder if we come to church realizing that we're in a boat that is on a mission. Because my experience as a pastor for 24 plus years is that not everybody thinks we're on a missional boat. Some of us think we're on a cruise ship. We are consumers of Christianity, right? And that's where my analogy, my first story I told you falls apart. What role was I in in that story? The one being served. I was the one being the consumer, being comforted. Now, I'm not saying that the church is in a place of comfort, but oftentimes we look at the church as a place to consume Christianity, whereas the boat here in this 
gospel lesson is on a mission. It is moving. It is going. It is not a place of comfort. It is not a place of being served. It is a place of service. And the best analogy, and I'm sure some of you have heard this analogy before, it's more like a Coast Guard cutter than a cruise ship. I don't know how you have seen the church, but the church is called to be the Coast Guard cutter that goes into the storm to seek and save the lost, those who are out lost in the sea. And what is going on in the sea? Well, here in the story, what's going on at the sea is the wind. The wind has churned up the waves, and the wind, it says in the text, is contrary to them. It is against them. The boat is the church then maybe the wind is the culture of our day. That we're fighting against this wind that is contrary to us in some ways. Do, you, do we understand that the wind of today is contrary to what we may expect or have known in the church in the past? That the wind has changed, and it is more contrary today than it ever has been before. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't get in the boat and go. But the wind is contrary. How, how do we see that? Well, here's how Matt sees that. Do you know, I've always known Seattle and the Northwest as the nun zone. Some of you know what that is. But nun zone means that if you were to do a demographic uh, questionnaire of this community, and then you would ask people what their religious affiliation is, they would check none. N-O-N-E, none. My religious affiliation is none. Because our culture, not just in Seattle, but in America, is post-Christendom. That means the wind of our culture is no longer blowing in the same direction as the missional boat of the church. We are no longer in a time when these things are lined together so much. Now it's contrary. We are in a post-biblical society. People today are not biblically literate, and yet we often approach our culture in a way that assumes that they know the Bible when they don't. I have a ton of stories about that later. You'll hear them. Don't worry. So we've got these things that are contrary, post-Christendom, post-biblical. We're in the nun zone here in Seattle, the cultural winds are not really feeling like they're blowing our direction, but we're still in the boat. We're still called to go. We're still called to face the wind of change. Because, and even when Jesus isn't there, even when it feels like Jesus is not there. And so we've got the boat, we've got the wind. And then in the middle of this, Jesus, some phantom shows up in the story, right? The phantom, the ghost shows up. And here the disciples are in the boat, and somebody cries, it's a ghost. <laughs> well, that's assuring, isn't it? <laughs> because in the culture of that day, the sea represented evil spirits to them. So the popular culture, the popular thought was this sea, these winds, these waves in the dark night, this was an evil place. So their natural inclination, their natural state of mind would have led them to say, it's a ghost. But how does that make everybody else, else in the boat feel when somebody says, hey, it's a ghost, <laughs> right? That just creates panic. I wonder if they then had a debate, you know, a theological debate among the disciples. 
well, is it Jesus or is it a ghost? You know, I don't know. What's your theory? You know, I don't know. I don't think they had that, but I bet they were all thinking some of those things, right? They're thinking this, and I think, you know, what it, I see the church doing that today, saying, they don't say it's a ghost. What are some of the cries of the church today that create panic? I'm going to ask you. What do you think? What are some of the cries of the church that create panic today? Yeah, exactly. The millennials. It's a millennial. What do we do? Right? Panic. You know what they said before the millennials? It's the Gen Xers. What do we do? You know what they said before the Gen Xers? It's the baby boomers. What do we do? Nothing's new under the sun. What's the next generation, by the way? Does anybody know what the, what's, po, what's after, what's post-millennial? Z. Z. All right, yeah, we've gone all the way to the end of the alphabet. I don't know what we're going to do next. What else? What other cries do you hear that create panic in the boat? God is dead, yeah. This idea that, that God is dead, that his God is no longer alive in America, that atheism and agnosticism has taken hold, right? That can create panic for a Christian, for a disciple. Any others out there? The Bible's not relevant. Wow. Yeah, it's an old ancient document. It couldn't possibly have anything to say to us. Could create panic, but it is very relevant. There's so much great stuff in there that applies to our lives today. I bet you some of you are holding back right now, aren't you? It's okay, I'm not going to press you just yet. We're going to change the pews. <laughs> Hadn't heard that one, but yeah, I, I know that, right? Now, these, these pews have already been changed. They have cushions on them. That, that looks like comfort to me, right? Let's make it comfortable. Not that it shouldn't be, because when you get long sermons, you want someplace comfortable to sit. But let's move on. I won't press you too much on that, but now you're getting a little bit of taste of Matt's preaching. But then Jesus says, <laughs> hey, not a ghost. <laughs> he actually says, it is I. Now, those of you who are students of the Old Testament, this should echo to you something. This should echo the call of Moses where Moses is told, I am has sent you, right, to go <laughs> to Pharaoh. The I am is shown up. Here again, we get Jesus' profession, I am. <laughs> it is I, son of God, walking on the water. That's who's there in the midst of the wind. Notice that Jesus does not calm the storm does not settle the winds. You know, if I were Jesus, and thank God I'm not, you, you should be thanking God that I'm not Jesus. But what happens here is that, you know, I would have like said, I would have gone down, calm the wind, calm the waves, which we know Jesus had the ability to do, come to the boat, say, hey guys, just, you know, and been very clear and been very, you know, pastoral with them, you know. But that's not what Jesus does. He, he lets the winds just keep right kicking up and the waves are still kicking up and and, and he says, it's just, it's I. I mean, he, it's like he doesn't have a care in the world. 
They're freaking out, and he's like, hey, what's the big deal, guys? I'm here in the wind. I'm here in the waves. I got this. (laughs) You don't need to be afraid of change because I'm here in it. I'm in the midst of it. So disciple Peter, (laughs) good old Peter, says, if it is you. Now, I was reading the translation on this, and I came in John Wesley's notes. John Wesley, for those of you who may not know, is the founding father of Methodism. And John Wesley wrote notes about this scripture. And in that script, he translated it this way. He thinks that Peter said, since it's you. It's a little bit different than if it's you, right? So I dug into the Greek a little bit on this. For those of you who are Greek scholars, um, I dug in a little bit. I said, could you translate it differently than that translation, if? And you could translate it since it's you. So here's the PPV version of this verse. You know what the PPV version is? Pull paraphrase version. You'll, that's, a, that's a new version I'll be coming out with shortly. I'm kidding. But it says that, I put it this way, I would translate this way, that Peter is saying, assuming it's you, I'm going to make an assumption, Jesus, that that is you. What is he doing in the midst of change? He's hoping it's Jesus. He's not fearing the ghost. He's, putting, he's trusting that it is Jesus. He's hoping it is Jesus. And so he says, I'm, assume, I'm going to assume it's you, Jesus, out there on the water. And just to clarify things, would you command me to come to you? And Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat. And he starts to walk on the water. And then what does he do? He starts to assume the worst. He starts to slip back into fear, and he begins to sink instead of hope. But then again, he takes a second step of faith. His first step of faith was out of the boat, but his second step of faith was when he reaches back out to Jesus. Because why? What does he say? He doesn't, he's not questioning if it's him or not anymore. He's saying, Lord, say he knows it's Jesus at this point. So he goes from the, an assumption to a fact. He goes from fear, he goes from trust to fear, and now back to trust again. He has gone through the change process multiple times here in this little passage of Scripture. And we all go through that. You see, we all have to determine where we're going to fall in that change. Whenever we face change, we have to realize that we can either assume the worst, we can assume it's a ghost, or we can assume trust. We can assume it is Jesus out there calling us, commanding us to come. So here's what I've learned, and here's why we can't stay here in the boat. I've learned that God typically doesn't grow the faith of disciples who stay in boats. We don't grow in our faith if we stay in boats. It's only when we get out and risk and try things and get out into the wind and into the waves that we actually learn that Jesus is there. It is Jesus, and Jesus has got us. We can assume the worst or we can assume the best. So we can't stay here eating leftovers from the last miracle. 
We can't stay here eating leftovers from the last miracle. We actually need to get out of the boats. We're a boat on a mission. But this doesn't just apply to us corporately. It also applies to us individually. So my question for you is, where is God, where is Jesus calling you to get out of the boat? Where is God saying to you, where is Jesus saying to you, come out on the water? What change is being asked for from you? Maybe you're, Jesus is saying to you this morning, it's time for you, for me, to move from being a consumer of Christianity to a servant disciple, to one who follows Jesus wherever he goes. Maybe it's time to move from being afraid that if I share my faith with someone else, they might reject me. Maybe I'm afraid. I'm assuming what? What am I doing when that let that fear? I'm assuming the worst in having that conversation rather than assuming the best and hoping that it might make a difference in their lives. Maybe some of us here today are being called to actually start a ministry or to do something to serve others in the world around them, in you, in your neighborhood. Maybe that's where Jesus is saying, come out onto the water. Serve these people. Make a difference in their lives. I don't know where Jesus is calling you, but I would say, listen, (laughs) trust that it's Jesus there. Assume that Jesus is in the wind and in the waves today. Amen?